The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, Trident Room host Mike Wish sits down and has a conversation with philanthropic mad scientist Dr. Vivian Ming. I do want to talk to you about why you came out here, uh, which was Bix. Uh, but before that, I do want to ask one question. It was about uh, the story that you've told, I think, a few times before. And it's a story about how you became a neuroscientist. It seemed somewhat by chance, uh, perhaps a little frivolous. Uh, but my understanding is that you had a choice between math, economics, and neuroscience. And I'll let you tell the story, but you ended up excluding math and ac- economics, uh, which which I studied economics previously, and, and I'm now studying math along, along with physics. So you threw away the, the, two of the things that, uh, that, I, that I care about the most in academics. So I, I made possibly terrible mistakes. Um, <laughs> So it's actually, in some senses, an extension of the story I just didn't tell, but I'll go right to that point, which is after a truly disastrous first half of my life, I suddenly found myself going back to university uh, 10 years later and a lot of misery. And this is the one part of my story. I truly cannot articulate why I thought this was achievable, but I did. I worked out what degree could I finish in a single year? Because I'm a snob, I mean, what technical STEM field degree? Uh, Yes, and so it was math, economics, or cognitive neuroscience. Um, And I thought, math, what am I ever gonna do with that? So that just went off the list right from the start. Little did I know what a lot of the rest of my career would be about. So economics uh, and neuroscience, so I, literally flipped a coin. Uh, When I say in some sense that your sense of purpose in the world can be arbitrary, you just get to choose. Note just how arbitrary that decision was. The coin came up heads, again, literally, and so I study heads. Uh, In fact, even then, I thought I was going to be what we call a wet neuroscientist. I'd stick wires into cats and see what the brains did. Uh, And then, again, just pure serendipity. Um, I took a programming course, the only one I've ever really taken, and I got a perfect score in the course, and the professor was blown away, and he said, hey, I hope you don't mind, but I recommended you to work at this place called the Machine Perception Lab. I'd never, I mean, I had the vague sense of what that might have been about, but it was not my intention to make that my field. So the Machine Perception Lab at UC San Diego had a bunch of money from the CIA to build a real-time lie detection system by analyzing people's facial expressions in the late 90s. So like this was pure science fiction at the time. And for my undergraduate honors thesis, I built a system that could find your pupils and your philtrum. That's the word of the day. I'm not doing a lot of work here on a podcast. The philtrum is a little foldy thing just beneath your nose. Um, and and tell whether you're smiling or not. And I got hooked. I mean, I still wanted to study brains, but I thought this is, one, it's a lot less messy, and you don't have to sacrifice, as we euphemistically call it, cats and rats and mice and macaques. Um, instead, it's a field called theoretical neuroscience. And so I got to mash up without expecting to math, and computer science, and statistics, and neuroscience, and psychology, all in one field. And that's what I ended up doing in my 
uh, PhD work was a massive integrative crossover of all of these fields. Uh, and it was just amazing. All, everywhere along the way, I got to do pure basic science. What is going, why do we hear the way we do? In the most basic sense, why does it work that way? And using information theoretic models that learned how to hear and arrived at the exact same solution as the human cochlea. It was so cool and it became my dissertation and nature's papers and all this stuff. It was a blast, but then to be able to immediately take that and build an algorithm that improved hearing in elderly people using cochlear implants. So the exact same work go directly from pure science to an application that made people's lives better. And I, I just, I was hooked. I am a scientist. I'm not an engineer. I'm not really an entrepreneur. I just tricked VCs into funding my experiments. I think that's called being an entrepreneur. Uh, it <laughs> might be. Um, you tricked yourself into thinking you're doing human good. So, uh, but in my particular case, that idea of doing applied science, which is a phrase that exists out in the world, but I ended up doing very differently. I mean, when someone writes me and says, my daughter has 500 seizures a, work, uh, a day. Of course, my job is to try and help save that kid's life. But actually, my job is to try and help any kid with a seizure disorder. Um, the only reason I'm involved in this is just no one else has been able to figure out this particular child. Uh, I am not uh, a specialist in um, epilepsy in any way. The only reason we get involved is because nothing else works. We're never anyone's first asked for help. Um, but one of the things is just realizing in doing our mad science, it's not just the mad part, but the science. We're learning. Even if the project fails, we learn something. We share it into the future. I've had the chance to do lots of briefings. I've done a couple of briefings at the Pentagon, uh, with the UK, God, I can't remember what their version of West Point is, but I had the pleasure of going out there and briefing them about cybernetics. I did the same thing for NATO. I've done it for a variety of different groups. My life has not much been involved with the military, but asked to help, of course, I'm happy to help and go do those briefings. Much of what I'm briefing on is what doesn't work. You know, having learned hard lessons about how to actually make a difference in the readiness of soldiers, in deploying a technology in a place as real as a battlefield, um, you know, those are wildly different things than running a lab experiment or some idealized industry product. Uh, and so doing this sort of work is still, for me, fundamentally scientific in its nature. I just get to see science play out in a very messy, complicated world. Probably a lot more science should be happening there. Uh, there is something that I want to touch on there. There's this emphasis on producing and uh, discussing things that didn't work. Uh, something I love about the military is that after any t training session or operation, we sit down and we have a hot wash, right? We, we take the rank off and we chat about what went good, what went bad, and we write up all of those lessons learned and then we file it away. Um, to, to keep a, a record of that. And so then anytime we go out to do something similar in the future, we can go back and we can figure out you know, what not to do, what didn't go very well. And there are very few, if any, that I'm aware of, you know, professional publications about experiments that didn't work. Uh, I feel like there should be this massive body of 
anti-knowledge, so to say, that says, like, don't do this, right? This is the wrong way to go. Or at least this is the way that we went about it. This is the approach we used, and it didn't work out. Yeah, I, I, well, I mean, it's we've there've been lots of discussions. Certainly, if you're in academia about why this is and what the incentive system is that causes people to only focus on the positive findings and the the biases that occur because of that, known biases that happen in science itself. Um, but some of this is just really human. Uh, I happen to believe that one of the greatest ideas, if not the greatest, in history, pardon me is the scientific method itself. The world is understandable and measurable, but the only way you can be confident in your conclusions if you try to prove yourself wrong. That second half is as true outside of science as it is inside, and yet I know from being a scientist, it's hard to do there. You don't want to prove yourself wrong. This is your pet theory. It's your, it's your baby. It's your career builder. You don't want that to get busted. Well, and there, there also might not be a lot of incentive out there for other people to try to prove you wrong, too, generally speaking, right? Yeah. So how do you build those things into practice and really live it is, again, I would argue, comes back to do you care more about doing your job right or about having the job? So, yeah, it's a, being a professor is a pretty great job. It doesn't pay as much as being a Wall Street tycoon, but... It is a wonderfully, uh, certainly the kind of professorships I've held, that is an elite world. Um, and it's not something that you have a lot of incentive to want to risk or give up. Uh, and I would also say that one of the things people don't appreciate about scientists is 90% of our job is communication. We write papers, we give talks, and the most elite within a field are invariably the best communicators. Many of them are quite smart, and sometimes those two things go hand in hand. But I'm willing to bet that there's a similar trend in leadership in the military, that great communicators find themselves able to articulate ideas, motivate people, excite them. And I'm, I'm not going to knock that. That is a valuable, powerful skill. Uh, the fact that I can get up on a stage, and I've come to understand this about myself, and get 30,000 people to laugh at a dumb joke, and uh, jaw drop at the reveal at just the right moment, I've come to appreciate that's part of my job um, as a scientist is to convey complicated ideas without dumbing them down, but in a way that people feel in their guts. Um, so that's a powerful thing, but again, it is far divorced from proving yourself wrong, from really aggressively uh, saying, uh, I'm going to do everything I can to test my assumptions in this problem space. For me and my work at SOCOS, though, like, again, for us, that's the whole starting point of what we do, which is, again, wonderfully clarifying for us. If someone's asking me to come help because their eight-month-old had a stroke, or their daughter has epilepsy, or their company has bias in their promotion process, but they can't quantify it, well, then someone's already tried. Doctors have gotten involved. Uh, specialists have done their best. They hired an economist to try and make this work. And yes, nowadays, I find myself doing, perhaps reading more economics papers than I do classic science papers. Uh, whatever works, 
That's all that I really care about. So for our starting point is, if this was an easy to solve problem, it would already be solved. Therefore, let's question every assumption, ours, theirs, the, the people that brought us the problem in the first place, everybody's got assumptions. The first thing you do is attack them. Um, so I'll start by like reading all the research history on a space uh, and read it with the thought of, um, all right, what led us here? Uh, and where might we have been led astray on a problem space? I'll go out. I've, I've shared the story a couple of times today, but uh, it's really illustrative. I did a project with the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And uh, you, the audience may not know this, granting a wish to a dying kid is a causal increase in their likelihood of survival. So some really cool papers published showing this is true. Um, and we had the chance to come in and add some AI into this story. Because, uh, of course, AI just magically fixed everything. And okay. I'm Hermione Granger. <laughs> so, um, but in this particular case, we had the chance to come in and say, well, does the nature of the wish match? Can we match witches to people and increase the odds of survival? Maybe increase things like, decrease things like divorce rates or increase even, uh, you know, um, economic outcomes for local neighborhoods. And sure enough, it matters. For some kids, you want to go to Disneyland? What if you brought your three best friends with you? We'll pay for everything. Um, making a wish more social increases likelihood of survival. Making it more narrative. You want to meet Chris Evans? What if you and Captain America fought a crime together? For some kids, making it more narrative increases survival rates. So being able to learn that sort of thing is powerful. Well, it may not shock you to know, though, the, when we asked what data they collected and the history of their organization, they sent us like a 64 kilobyte spreadsheet. It, you know, it was just some names and addresses. It had nothing. Um, so we had to get clever about well, what does it mean to solve this problem? First off, is there any data for us to use at all? Well, you know, I, because I have this very interdisciplinary background, I know a lot about some stuff in um, uh, relationship psychology research, even though it's not my field. Turns out there's just a lot of great research touching. Changes in touching rates between family members are big, predict big identifiers of stress and predictors of things like divorce rates. So we thought, I bet you must have sent like the press out. There's photos somewhere. If we could even just use AI to analyze those photos and see changes in touching rates between family members, decreasing touching, increasing touching, seeing what's going on, when suddenly your world gets changed and you get this amazing opportunity to do something wonderful and maybe even health circumstances change, sure enough, touching rates increase. Um, so one, it was being clever. Where do you actually get, and how could you know to look for that if one, you didn't have this crazy interdisciplinary background, two, you didn't go out and watch them and say, wait a minute, they've got a reporter there taking photos. That's data. Um, but also, where do you put the data back? Where do you intervene on this system? So much of what we think of with things like AI and machine learning, um, uh, interestingly, I think 
not so much restricted today at the Big Ideas Festival, but it pops up a lot, is just we'll use it to analyze the system and we'll learn more than we know before. We'll have more information. But for me, the question is, where do you build a system that reaches back in and changes a life? The life of a soldier, the life of a little sick kid. Turned out the right moment was to reach back in right before what they're called the wish granters, right before they hit the doorbell. Give them a set of recommendations. For this child, here are the kind of nudges that we recommend. So whatever they wish for, that's their wish. You don't get to change that. But here are some suggestions of ways that you could say, wow, you want to go to Disneyland. What if we bought your three best friends? And let's see here, a lot of these kids sick, they, maybe they spent their whole life at home, they don't have three best friends. Don't say that. So we give them a bunch of recommendations of different things they could go with to make this wish effective. It's, if you don't go out and experience the reality of that problem, if you don't do messy in the world science, you'd never have known the right place to get the data from or to put it back. Um, and I don't mean this to make this such a forced transition, but I just sat through six pitches of big ideas uh, from people here at the postgraduate school, and every one of them were, of course, lived, experienced ideas, you know, and I had a strong sense of lived frustrations of, for Christ's sake, we're doing this by hand, or there's a standardized test and no one ever actually touches the equipment, or whatever the problem may be. I could tell that all six of these officers had lived this problem. They weren't pitching a, a crazy idea about how Bitcoin is going to change the world. They weren't pitching a really grounded in the lab, but abstracted from real life idea about here's what I could do under perfect conditions. Every one of these was, you know, the way I put it is they sold themselves. They were such obvious next transformational steps in the process it was doing, whether it was, a, you know, planning and budget management or ship maintenance or education, these things have to happen. Um, not because no one could ever have come up with that idea before, but no one ever brought together the lived experience with the understanding of a capability. And six times in a row, um, sure, a guy, I want to see a little variety next time, but six times in a row, guys got up there and said, uh, this is something that has to happen, and I'm going to be the one to push it forward. But hey, it would really help with some of you with all the extra stars and everything if you would help. And I think every single one of them got some powerful person in the room to say, yeah, let me connect you with the right person. And, and that's kind of what needs to happen in a moment like that. But, you know, what was cool is it was different than when I hear my grad students pitching me ideas in the lab, which are about idealized circumstances and pushing the, the limits of understanding but maybe without application, or pitches out in the entrepreneurial world, which are often about, I have a really good sense of what people will pay for. I'm not gonna knock that. I build a bunch of companies that people aren't willing to pay for stuff, then it's, it's a drag starting a company. It's hard. You want there to be a payoff. Um, this was, I, I hate pitch competitions. I, I don't like them. 
this is one of the few times I've ever sat in a room and I thought, yeah, these people are solving real problems. They're bringing innovation and a real lived problem together with understanding. Um, the one dimension that I brought up with a number of them is adoption is a hard thing. And adoption in the military, whatever branch, has its own unique spin on being hard. Uh, but, you know, it's one thing to be agile. It's another thing to be in the world, being a part of carrying your idea out there, going and ringing the doorbell of a dying kid. Um, so I think the next step for these big ideas is to go ring some doorbells um, and plant some trees. But uh, in the moment, this was like one of the most real pitch uh, scenarios I've ever gone through. Well, I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. Uh, I know a lot of listeners probably weren't able to see the BICS event today due to class or thesis work, uh, but we do have those recorded. Uh, for those that weren't there, what exactly was your role and, and how did you come to be involved? Uh, I believe my role was formally defined as pompous jackass. <laughs> I looked at the pamphlet and I don't think that we wrote that in there. Uh, although, as, as I pointed out, it would, uh, amusingly, I did in fact find out in the grand hierarchy, mad scientist comes just below rear admiral, but okay. above a couple of other ranks. Uh, it was fun to have that played out for me yeah. today. Yeah, uh, just so you know. I mean, I'm, I'm cool with the fact that there was no saluting going on when I sh rolled in here, but we might have to check on that next time. So uh, my, I'm the external member. There were some... Uh, um, some staff that were there uh, for the university um, that are themselves uh, scientists and, and professors uh, that are not um, everyday soldiers. But I'm the true external person here today. Um, and obviously, I've got a background in building, taking crazy ideas and bringing them into the real world and kind of mixing it up, I think, is why I was supposed to be here, uh, to be the one person that wasn't going to know what any of the... Um, you know, COM, uh, the, the, the acronym COM, uh, all the acronyms. I didn't know what any of them meant, but I could, I could figure, no, I did not get prepped ahead of time. Uh, I'm smart enough to keep my mouth shut and uh, appear to be brilliant in all things. But, um, you know, my job is to really say, I realize this is a very specialized world, but I've done this for more than 20 years in dozens of dozens of different projects across many domains, including a couple of cases with the military, and really understanding the complexity of bringing change into the world. Not a great new idea, not even an, an innovation, bringing the change in at the other side. Because the brutal truth is none of it matters until then. You can learn from failure. Absolutely, and, and, and we should make a, an explicit point of tracking, and that was brought up in the room, tracking every one of these ideas, see which of them really play out and which don't, which get the support they ought to and which don't, because I suspect none of them are going to fail for the quality of the idea. Every one of them is going to live or die, and there were six. If even half of them push all the way through, I will truly be impressed. Um, so, and I'm not saying that because they weren't equally good ideas. I'm saying that because people will push back. Uh, vested interests will come into play. People will say, oh, I got to learn a new system. And slowly it'll run out of steam and then it will die. That's the life of most startups. 
it's a life of a lot of graduate students' projects that, you know, they, they get a bit of a life. And then once they graduate, they don't carry forward because they just don't have enough impetus and the PI wasn't interested enough to keep working on it themselves. Um, and so recognizing... The results of most of my home improvement efforts as well, you know, start, starting to run into friction. I've decided to come to love the local flora and fauna of Berkeley, California. Whatever grows in my backyard clearly was meant to grow there. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I've decided to... And if it dies, it's not my fault. It's just small parkland. I'm just, that's my role. My neighbor's not thrilled about this. Um, so, you know, for me, you know, this is a serious issue. And it's one thing when people are just pitching get-rich-quick ideas. Every one of these ideas should happen. So for me then, it's thinking, what comes next? What's the growth for the Naval Postgraduate School where it's more than a training opposition, uh, uh, opportunity, a skill set acquisition for the students rolling through? It's more than career building for the faculty here that are under many of the same faculty pressures as any other university. This could be an opportunity for this organization to be a generator of not just new ideas and new innovation, but change in the American military. And, and again, as someone from the outside, uh, there's not everything the US military does is my favorite thing in the world. But I have a firm belief that making it better makes the world better. And every time I've been asked to help, no questions asked. Better officer corps, I'm all in. Because, you know, I've, one of my projects with the Pentagon was an education project. And it wasn't about the Pentagon. It was, a, we broke it, we bought it thing. They just owned so many local communities. In this particular case, um, I can, I'm not going to try and get my names right, but Africa and the Middle East, that they just wanted advice on how to run local education programs uh, because they were in charge of so many of them. And, and I, I just love the fact that, that the, in this case, it was the, the Office of the Secretary of the Army just owned that fact and brought in some experts to help advise them on how to do it right. That, so, you know, the U.S. military is better. The world is better. Uh, it is a firm belief of mine, and that happens when organizations like NPS have an opportunity to become the drivers, again, not just of idea, not just of education, change within the military. Uh, and I think there's a, a growth here that can happen not just with the individual student, but the whole institution. Well, hopefully we'll see that through. Uh, I do want to ask you a question that you were asked during the big event uh, that was asked of all the mentors, and that is when it comes to national security, what is the big idea that we need today? So I'll ask you that here, again, uh, for the audience that couldn't hear it. Yeah, so, you know, I had a couple of answers to that, actually, because, again, my role here was pompous jackass. So um, the first one is an important one, that it was actually brought up uh, you can include this or not. I am terrible with names. So, clearly the most important man in the room was Admiral Gass. We'll but he and a couple of others said, for one important thing is that there isn't one big idea. And my extension of that is uh, moonshots are few and far between. Um, in fact, we progress most quickly 
In fact, when we explore lots of little big ideas, every one of them should have the aspiration of changing the world. But it is possible for one small group of people with a tiny budget and, you know, go against procurement protocol around here, I get the sense, but with a tiny budget to truly make a catalytic change. Maybe they can't take an idea out to the entire scope of the Navy or the Army, but to come up with first the idea and transform it into an innovation, uh, that is something that actually should be percolating all of the time. Thousands of little big ideas. Uh, in our work, um, we ran, back in economics, uh, a lot of game theoretic models. Turns out the optimal uh, sort of incentive structure for collective intelligence, and where more do you want collective intelligence than across an the largest military organization in history, the optimal incentive structure is what's called minority opinion. We don't reward you for being right or in a market style, we reward you for being right when the majority was wrong. And I think we can appreciate, even I as an outsider can understand, that may not be the normal way things work in the military. Um, nonetheless, this is what maximizes innovation. That comes from a, a thousand little big ideas, all getting explored with the intention of trying to explore something different than everyone else. So that's my first pitch there. And the other one is I am a notional AI expert that also studies brains and education. I build companies, and some of them have been applying AI in HR, uh, you know, human capital management. And I can tell you this, the thing that AI is truly good at, it's still mediocre at many, many things, but the thing it is truly good at, the thing it will put us out of jobs is routine labor. And when I say routine, I don't care how many years of school you went through to learn that routine. You could be a radiologist, you could have studied quantitative finance. If you're staring at a spreadsheet doing a risk assessment, I guarantee you, I in a week could build a deep neural network that can do it cheaper, faster, and if it's not quite better than you, it is so much cheaper and faster. One of my favorite examples here is uh, a little startup that built an AI that read contracts, and they did a competition between a bunch of human lawyers and their AI at Columbia University, and they found that the AI didn't blow the lawyer's array, so it read a bunch of non-disclosure agreements, and. Um, it could find about 95% of these sort of engineered in loopholes to the contracts. The human lawyers found like 88%. Whatever. They didn't do terribly. They're only human. We'll call it a tie. Uh, the humans took 90 minutes to read each contract. The AIs took 22 seconds. That is economics we do not win. But what's amazing about the flip side of that story is AI can't do anything creative. It is an incredibly powerful tool. It empowers creative people. In fact, that's, in my opinion, its real value proposition. I once had an itch to scratch about wage gap. Every economist, every labor economist I know has written a paper about wage gap. There's absolute consensus. Women make different choices than men. That's what drives wage gap. I just thought, that's a non-answer. Why do they make different choices? 
So I, a notional non-economist, because of a coin toss, uh, had an itch to scratch. So I built a bunch of little AIs into a bunch of spiders. They crawled across the websites of 60,000 companies. And two days later, I had a finding that almost all of the variance in wage gap across companies could be explained by the number of female leaders inside that company. As female leadership went up, women chose to work more hours and wage gap began to decrease. In fact, could often go away almost entirely. So now I had an answer. Could you imagine 10 years ago, how many years, how many grad students it would have taken me to analyze data on 60,000 companies? I did it all by myself in two days. Not because I'm a genius, but because I'm creative, I'm clever, and I knew how to do this work. I had learned how to master this tool, which is machine learning, artificial intelligence. That is the future of work. The downside of that is if we don't take that seriously, we keep educating kids, soldiers, workforce the same way we always have been, then we are going to see this growing divide between our creative labor force and everybody else. And that divide will lead to social decision. It'll lead to economic loss. Long term, it's a security threat, a serious and legitimate one. We tap into that. And I'm not a utopian. I am not magically saying somehow instead of 1% of the global workforce, 100% are part of the creative economy. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen in 20 years. What if it was 2%, double the current population, 3%? Here's my dream, 10%. Order of magnitude, more people around the world coming up with cures for diabetes or COVID. Coming up, if this resonates with you, with strategies about how to diffuse tensions between global powers. Like, that is a world I want my kids to grow up in. It is an achievable world. But just like personal individual change around purpose and sacrifice and courage, this is hard stuff. It doesn't come overnight. It requires effortful change within our education system, our hiring system, training, human capital management across the board. Uh, we aren't willing to make that investment. This is a long-term threat for America. We are. This is a persisting advantage for America. Yeah, there's, there's no question what I think most people uh, probably have a very good sense of just how impactful AI will be. But I also suspect that most folks, myself included, aren't aware in what context it will be employed and the unintended consequences of its employment might be. That doesn't negate, I don't think, our responsibility to try to figure it out, and then also how to do it ethically and in a way that makes sense economically and otherwise in terms of military application. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded August 24th, 2021. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroom.